Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Daily French Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Lorimer, and today I'm joined by Herbrand van Heerden. Harry, how are you doing? Better than my hair. <laughs> and I, I, if, if the headphones weren't holding down my, uh, my hair, it would be... Uh, I think also in a difficult situation. It would be challenged, as government officials say. Um, we also have with us today Chris Hutton. Chris, how are you doing? I'm like, hi, Harry. Doing well, thanks. I'm complaining about my hair. I'm complaining about the weather. So, yeah. Yes, well, it's actually a little bit warmer than it has been up till now. Um, but despite that, we are uh, back in stage six load shedding, uh, mm -hmm. which is we, we will get to, I think, in the show. But first, uh, we're not going to do this as a proper topic, but I think it's kind of worth just mentioning very briefly, just for some quick comment from you guys. Uh, we, of course, saw the burning down of Parliament a while ago, uh, and the man on trial for it uh, has been undergoing a number. His second, he's just, he's just finished his second psychiatric evaluation. This is whether he is fit to stand trial. His name is Zandile Mafe, and he's being represented in court by uh, the EFF's uh, Dalian Porfu. Um, the results just came in today of his second psychiatric evaluation. And as they were about to be announced, he stood up on the stand and said that uh, Parliament must be moved to Bloemfontein and that if it wasn't, he was going to burn it down again. He then said that the DA were racists and murderers and that the party should not be in Parliament. Uh, he then talked about uh, how he didn't like whites and jews he said i don't want whites in this land they must they must bring back land to black people whites are murderers whites are killers and then he finished off by saying that parliament should be turned into a toilet uh the judge says that he on purpose did not interrupt mafia's outburst and said that um, quote i know mr mafia's medical condition and i don't want to exacerbate it uh, he went on to basically say that the findings of the second psychiatric evaluation confirmed the first, which is that he is not able to appreciate the wrongfulness of his actions. Um, I think the original diagnosis was a severe level of schizophrenia. Uh, now, there's been a postponement till the 10th of August, uh, whether this, is, this finding is going to be challenged or not. Um, but it looks like uh, he's basically been found insane. Um, although, you know... His outbursts here sound an awful lot like the policy positions of the EFF, who are, of course, being very friendly to him in public statements. Kerry, anything to say about this? This is, continues to be a sort of slightly depressing and dark chapter of our country's history, the fact that Parliament burned down and that no one really cared that much. Um, no, I don't. Um, no, I didn't follow the story too much. But um, I think it speaks to a number of things. There, there is a growing um, mental health crisis in, in the, uh, amongst the homeless population in the Western Cape. Um, but also, um, I don't know what uh, is it. Is it financially viable to have Parliament in Cape Town, or is it something? I don't know. It's uh, maybe there is justification to move it to. Uh, Pretoria, I, I, I don't know, um, seeing so many ministers fly up and down between the two capitals, uh, maybe he has some <laughs> argument there, but otherwise um, the, the man is uh, definitely, um, uh, uh, he needs help. <laughs> um, Chris, any, any thoughts on this just before we move on? Just 
maybe useful to distract from the fact that not much has been done in terms of rebuilding what was burnt, right. whether by by this person or by others. It's a useful, not not to say that he doesn't genuinely, based on two valuations, have mental problems, and those hopefully could be you know handled, and he can get the treatment that he needs. But it also it's helpful for distracting from those other deeper issues. Um, usually, when we've got these long-running scandals and things in the media, media attention, then you know we <laughs> we lose sight of the fact that the government just doesn't fix the stuff that should be fixing. So it's useful for them, right. for them in that regard. Yeah, no, a continually kind of embarrassing story. This I think for the country is that firstly that he was able to get get into parliament to do this. Um, but secondly, just, yeah, it's, I don't know, I find this whole story kind of depressing. But speaking of depressing, let's talk about the country's infrastructure. Yes, what a segue. <laughs> and, um, you know, we've recently had government really talking up the prospect that, uh, that you know, it might be on the verge of load shedding kind of coming to an end, that things are looking rosy from here out. Uh, Energy, uh, electricity minister, rather, um, Ramakorpa, has been talking about how you know, we've seen some improvements in the energy availability factor these last two weeks, and you know we're almost at sixty percent. Uh, so, energy availability factors, of course, that uh, the percentage of the power plants that are able to actually pro produce power, um, basically. Uh, so, so sixty percent means that of the theoretically installed capacity of however much able to produce sixty percent of the electricity you should, um, and that things are really good. But, Kerry. Uh, the CRA, uh, which you and Chris both work for, has just put out a, a macro review of infrastructure in the country. So can you just take us a little bit through that um, and maybe with a with a focus on, on, on ESCOM? Um, well, what we found in, in this macro review is there's essentially three infrastructure challenges that is severely limiting South Africa's growth potential. We have uh, obviously, the, the energy crisis, not much to say there. It's a very well-documented crisis. But I think another more insidious uh, infrastructure challenge that the, the country is sitting with is the, the logistics crisis. Um, freight being transported by rail has declined by 30% since 2017. And um, that has just moved more goods and services to be, uh, uh, so, uh, that has moved more goods to be transported onto the country's already decaying roads. Uh, and, and freight transported on the roads has increased by uh, about 60% since 2017. So it just shows how much more pressure there is now on our, our road network. And then um, Sandral, who um, contributes a lot to to the the building building maintaining and expansion of of roads, have indicated that their their ability to to further maintain and and expand our existing road infrastructure is um, severely limited now uh, due to financial reasons, um, other factors as well. But uh, yeah, the logistics crisis, uh, a huge problem. Um, and there are, are some experts and companies who said, who, who has come forward and, and said that um, 
the 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 problems that we see with our our railways has um you know shaved off shaved off at least um five percent to seven percent of the country's potential gdp growth um so basically um having just as much of an impact as as load shedding has had on the country and i think for consumers um you know we we might not be that aware of how major the impact is of our of our failing railway system because you know with load shedding it's very obvious you know your lights go off for a few hours but with railways you know not a lot of um middle class south africans use trains um so uh, uh, the, the the problems or the challenges that we face there might um you know not be so evident but it's definitely had a huge impact on our country and then the the third uh, infrastructure challenge that the country is increasingly um experiencing is of course our our water supply system and our our water treatment systems i mean um the the, the fact that you have a cholera outbreak in one of our major metropolitan cities that has killed a number of people i mean that's a disease that you usually only find in um war you know, zones. Uh, sorry in war uh, zones yeah exactly exactly um yeah so that just uh shows the the extent of infrastructure decay in in the country we we do also in the report come up with uh, a few um uh ways to to fix the situation um the one of the ways is to get local firms and and multinational corporations to um assist with their expertise and their resources um to to help uh, revitalize economic infrastructure um we also you know advocate for um the professionalization of the public service by ensuring that appointments are made by merit and that we do we we attract skills and we keep the skills that we have um and i think that that speaks to you know policy as well and and you know ensuring that that policy helps to attract skilled individuals and not chase them away like like we're currently doing and then of course the um another obvious solution is to to privatize um failing state-owned enterprises like like escom and and uh, transnet um but but yeah i i think i'll conclude by saying that um in the report we also compared south africa uh, to to other countries globally in terms of the the challenges that they think are uh of most concerning um in in more developed uh western economies uh there was a broad consensus that uh stuff like inflation uh supply this uh supply chain disruptions um uh cyber crime those are the issues that that those uh, that that region was most concerned with but south africa's complete outlier for us failing infrastructure aging dams broken bridges uh, roads that are falling apart that was our number one concern 
So it just shows you how concerned businesses in this country are um, with regards to infrastructure failings. So Chris, just, uh, I mean, you also pretty interested in the country's infrastructure. I know you, you've talked a lot about ports and, and, and rail before, um, but it's, let me let me just focus a little bit on ESCOM and where this kind of enthusiasm and optimism is coming from uh, uh, Minister Ramakorpa, uh, who said, you know, we've got all these experts deployed at the power stations to improve energy availability factor, uh, that we're much closer to achieving the 70% that has been our target. While at the same time, you've got, you know, sort of well-known energy analysts like Chris Yalen saying, energy availability year, uh, year on year is actually at 53% for the country. Um, and this is down from 58% last year. And that uh, this blip we've got up now of energy availability factor that the government is getting so excited about is usual for winter. And we're just going to probably plummet right back down again. Um, is the end of load shedding in sight? We've heard quite a lot of kind of suggestion now from government that it, it really is now. It could well be, but not in the sense that government might want, might want, because so many people are trying to now go off grid. That, of course, means lower revenues for municipalities, lower tax revenues for government, lower revenues for ESCOM. So it's trite to say at this point, but given South Africans' resilience, that has now just it's a you know fact of reality. Given the numerous state failures around us, how people have tried to now implement their own um, sort of anti-state, not anti-state, but sort of anti-fragility uh, plans as best as they can with electricity, water, security, education, healthcare, take your pick. Um, mainly why we've had less intense load shedding for the last few weeks is the running into the ground of the open cycle gas turbines. Um, yesterday, two days ago, 15 of these were being run and those are only supposed to be used in an emergency or when you're really at the, the very top end where ESCOM can't meet demand with its own supply. So that's one, you need to um, replenish um, the dams, the reservoirs, you need to replenish equipment where that breaks down. And also on Sunday with the minister saying, you know, we're almost, we've got the end of load shedding in sight. I don't know if they didn't see the weather forecast when you've now got the spike in demand when the weather is colder, people are gonna use or try and use more electricity where they can. That puts more pressure on ESCOM's available fleet. With all that being said, I don't see that enough maintenance is being done uh, right now. Um, ESCOM traditionally does less maintenance. That that in turn means the energy availability factor would look better because you've got less possibility of plant breaking down because it's not in use. That doesn't mean you're maintaining it now for future use coming up. Some of the analysis we've done on ESCOM's own numbers points to in April and May next year, you've got the potential for much more outages at that point. And that could be around the time of the election. So I don't know if ESCOM have looked at their numbers in sufficient detail. <laughs> Maybe they need to question that as well. Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly right. And that's what sort of struck me about all the reporting about this is that um, almost all of the ever, almost all of the reason for why we've got uh, a better than expected load shedding Ooh. is because demand has been lower than expected. And I think that's because, as you say, South Africans make a plan. They're pretty resilient. They find a new way to do things, uh, which, you know, causes more problems for ESCOM and the government. But I think in the long run, um, if we do get out of, of out of load shedding without major reforms being done to the infrastructure to, to, to mm -hmm. that, it's going to be basically because so many people, so many companies, so many consumers have gone sort of off grid uh, that uh, 
the state just isn't as relevant as it was before. And that's quite uh, an interesting outcome, um, but one that we've been suggesting for a while. Anyway, let's move on to the next one. And this concerns the price. It's also related to energy. It concerns the price that Sassel charges for natural gas. So Sassel uh, holds a monopoly in South Africa on natural gas uh, sales. And um, it's been charging quite a lot of money for these natural gas sales. So much so, uh, and, and, and all of this has been proved by the National Energy Regulator of South Africa, NERSA. Um, NERSA's supposed job is to kind of keep prices low and control the price of things. And it's, it's, it's a very sort of state-centric approach to pricing in the marketplace. Um, but a large, I think last year, Sassel tried to sort of, I think it was 96% increase on the price they were charging for, for natural gas, which caused a large number of consumers, mostly industrial consumers of natural gas, to take this issue to the Competition Commission. And the Competition Commission, an organization that I think most of us on this podcast are not huge fans of, found that uh, they were, in fact, that Sassel was price gouging, charging a markup of 72% on natural gas. So, Chris, what's your take on this story? Um, one of the, the, the sort of lines coming out of the, the reporting on this is that, you know, what is the point of NERSA? If you're going to have government control of prices, isn't the whole idea of that supposed to be that they kind of push prices below what the market would charge? Uh, just kind of seems really sort of inefficient. And I'm not really sure what the benefit is here of all of these regulations. Yeah, so much of competition policy around the world tends to ignore the laws of supply and demand and basic economics. So when, for example, you've got, as we've had high inflation in the last few years, the problem isn't money printing stimulus, but the problem is so-called greed, for example, or higher wages. It's not because economies were locked down and too much money was pumped in, effectively lessening the value of money, but uh, the problem is put on, on, on businesses um, and they're sort of operation. So in South Africa, we've got the Competition Commission, not often, actually not ever really saying anything about government monopolies or when there are issues in those areas of competition. For example, airlines, where SAA continues to get bailouts, is that is that fair competition compared to other airlines? You've got ESCOM, of course, being a monopoly in electricity generation, distribution. Even now, um, people can now get licenses for self-generation, but you still need to go through NERSA. So the blockage then is there in terms of bureaucracy and licensing. So all in all, that Sassel has enjoyed a relatively more protected space. It has effectively put it up for a weaker position going further because it's been able to do this markup and charge higher prices. That means it hasn't been as efficient. It hasn't had to compete with normal market forces. That puts it, it and the South African economy as a whole on a weaker footing going forward. You set yourself up weaker and a more brittle state if you don't allow real competition and sort of competition between suppliers in various products and services. Yeah, we've seen the sort of anti-competition streak, I think, through so many things in government. I mean, this is not, this is not to be fair, entirely a creation of the ANC. Um, yeah. The apartheid state was very Absolutely. keen on its sort of centralized monopolies and, mm -hmm. and these big state-owned enterprises and stuff, and the ANC in many ways inherited those and has kind of just entrenched them. Um, in some places and privatize them in others. But it's, yeah, Kerry, what's your, what's your take on this? It really um, seems like NERSA in particular is not really doing us any favors here. It doesn't keep prices low. It stands in the way of more generation capacity. It's just generally there to make life more difficult for South Africans. Do you agree? 
Um, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, inflation is still above the, the SARP's uh, target range. Um, it Life's just become extremely con uh, expensive for the, the, the average South African and is in part, like you and Chris mentioned, South Africa has a very um, anti-competitive economy and a, an economy that doesn't um, encourage uh, innovation, competition. And when you don't have those types of, of forces, you know, um, uh, prices will will be inflated and and um, there's uh, all, all, all that will be left will be for for consumers to you know dig deep into to their pockets but um, when you introduce market forces that that allows for um, you know a greater variety of services products and that tends to kind of push prices down um, but with the, the government's current uh, legislative framework and, and how we go about things, um, you know, we, what we're doing is keeping monopolies afloat. Uh, we have an economy that benefits monopolies uh, extensively and, you know, really hurts, you know, SMEs uh, to a point where nobody wants to open up a new business here anymore or invest. Um, yeah, so it's it's quite dire. That's that's one of the greatest ironies of ANC policy, is that the ANC talks so much, you know, about this kind of socialist thing and evil capital strangling yeah. the workers and all that sort of nonsense. But then, when you actually see the effect of their policies, it's to create a space where only big companies can be players. And you can look at that at, at sort of any level, whether it be the fact that the regulations can only be complied with with the larger companies, with the fact that infrastructure problems like load shedding, you know, a small salon that someone is running uh, in, a, in a little shopping center somewhere, they can't deal with load shedding, but a huge mining company that makes billions of, of rands, they can at least afford to create their own power solution in some cases. So it is one of the greatest examples, I think, of counterproductive policy is the fact that despite supposedly trying to make South Africa a more equal place, the ANC has in effect empowered large business players more. And you can see that they continue to have this mindset. We talked about it, I think, on uh, Monday, um, Dr. Nicholas Crisp. Uh, in promoting the NHI, basically said, yeah, no, we need fewer medical aid schemes, uh, less competition. We need to have uh, a couple of big players that comply with the state. Um, so you see this this this, this ide ideology permeates through the whole of government policy and it to terribly negative things. And even socialists or people who don't actually agree with people like us on the economy should recognize that these ANC policies have been tremendously counterproductive. Um, Anyway, and Nick, let's move on. Sorry, Nick, just to yeah, mention, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, that's when we hear these sorts of partnership initiatives between business and government, that's when I get a bit concerned about some of the risks because the more regulation and bureaucracy there is, the better for bigger businesses that can that have compliance departments that can deal with right. all these things, all those costs. You, like smaller mom and pop shops can't deal with that. Exactly, and you have a big company that's able to basically pay off some political cadres. They say, okay, you guys get yep. this little chunk of money here and we'll get the project. Um, it's, 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 this is, this is one of the reasons why we say that, you know, policy like corruption is not just something that emerges magically from society mm -hmm. based on our internal goodness. Policy allows it. We've seen it in ESCOM with, uh, with how preferential procurement and the Zondo commission made a big deal about this, um, enabled corruption. 
And we see it here with some of these regulatory things where, where you basically push any smaller competition out of the market. And as a result, you have an inefficient system where only the big players get to play. Uh, right. So anyway, let's move on to our next topic. And this is, speaking of corruption, this is one of those corruption stories that I think is unusual in its impact. Um, and this involves Mozambique's former finance minister, Manuel Chung, uh, who was extradited to the U.S. from South Africa on Wednesday to face charges for his alleged role in a $2 billion debt scandal. Uh, there was competing claims about where he should be extradited to. Mozambique said he should be extradited to Mozambique. He, he fled the country after uh, the scandal. Um, and the U.S., who some of the companies he allegedly defrauded, um, uh, has been trying to extradite him as well. So what happened was back in, I think it was about 20, uh, the, the two th between 2005 and 2015, during his time as the finance minister of Mozambique, uh, he got a large number of loans from Credit Suisse and a Russian bank called VTB uh, that were all guaranteed by the Mozambican government. They were signed off by him. But hundreds of millions of dollars from these loans went missing, and the projects that they were supposed to fund were never delivered. Uh, uh, the U.S. authorities say the borrowing was fraudulent, and the projects spanning everything from tuna fishing to shipyard development to maritime security were a front for an elaborate bribery and kickback scheme. When the story came out into the public eye in 2006, it caused massive uh, uh, problems for Mozambique, huge numbers of international donors who had been you know, keeping the country afloat, as well as the IMF, which had been um, financially supporting the Mozambique government, suddenly cut off support to them, which caused their currency to collapse and their, uh, the country to default on its debt. Chris, uh, I don't think I've ever seen a, a corruption scandal that by itself basically tanked a country's economy. And it's really sad too because Mozambique had, I think until this, this, this scandal sort of collapsed things, looked like it was on a path towards slightly better growth, slightly uh, recovery from the civil war, which really destroyed that country. Um, what do you make of this? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right to to sort of highlight that. I guess that's one of the things with corruption. It can either, in most forms, it'll take time to sort of manifest in destructive uh, consequences or slowly but surely eat away. But it can also lead to the sort of perfect storm, as it were, almost all coming together and then really uh, destroying an economy. And uh, then how does one get out of that sort of, you know, just not, not even... The damage itself but the sort of reputation the damage to institutions the trust to, to now again sink capital into that location for example how does one recover those i'm sure there are you know corruption anti-corruption experts who could explain better than us on the sort of steps the practical steps but those intangibles around confidence and trust in institutions how do you build that up again it is very sad as you rightly point out for mozambique and given South Africa's trajectory, one hopes that countries around in sub-Saharan Africa, some of them get some of the things right so that they could be in a better position and sort of help South Africa along. Um, so yeah, all in all, pretty sad story. Yeah, I, I do I do wonder. I think uh, trying to avoid something like this is why the ANC always tries to put one of its most credible people, whoever that may be, and the credibility of its finance has been decreasing with each one, I think. But... Um, uh, 
the 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 ANC has always been careful to put one of their more credible people in that role because when your finance minister does something like this, the consequences are profound. Um, and I think also of Argentina, where there were attempted reforms that failed in that country, uh, because I think the the minister or something, the, the 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 president made one decision that was thought to be irresponsible, and it completely collapsed confidence. Harry, what's your take on this? I mean, this kind of just shows. I think it's more obviously important to Mozambique than it is to us, but that the confidence of foreign institutions that you're not just going to steal everything that's not nailed to the floor is is really important um yeah i'll, I'll just say that it just shows the the widespread ramifications that that corruption can can have it's not just you know stealing um money but it's like stealing um funds that could have gone to improving infrastructure and and um, uh, in, investing in projects that would create create jobs. It's 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 a huge problem not only in Mozambique, in South Africa, in in on the entire con uh, continent. And unless African leaders can can get a grip on on corruption, um, you know expecting huge volumes of of investment to to come in um you know that's going to remain elusive indeed all right i think that's all the time we have for today thank you very much everyone we will be back next week on the daily friend show i hope you all have a wonderful one and uh cheers